Welcome to Thinking About Adoption, a podcast brought to you by AdoptMatch. We are your hosts, birth mom and AdoptMatch policy director, Kelsey Vanderblade-Ranyard. And AdoptMatch co-founder and adoption attorney, Celeste Liversidge. We're here to cut through the noise and tell you the truth about what to expect before, during, and after an adoption, and to make sure you connect with the right support and people along the way. Through information and education, our goal is to preserve adoption as a safe and accessible option for women facing an unintended pregnancy. If you're considering adoption and need help or just want to learn more about the process, visit AdoptMatch.com, where you'll find everything you need to know about adoption, along with a directory of ethical adoption attorneys, agencies, and a wide range of awesome waiting adoptive parents. Listen to Thinking About Adoption on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you've heard, please take a minute to leave us a review. Today, we are talking about open adoption, and we have a listener question. I've been trying to figure out what open adoption actually means and how it will work after my baby is born. Is it realistic to think that we can have an ongoing relationship? What are the pros and cons of having an open adoption? Do I need a written agreement? What happens if the adoptive parents stop communicating with me? These are all really great questions. Celeste? These are all, yeah, all questions that we hear, that I hear all the time from clients. These are questions that oftentimes don't get raised until after the match is made, and they're really questions that should be raised before before the match. Openness and adoption is something that should be talked about really from the very beginning of even considering a family. You want to make sure you're on the same page. You don't want to, just want to say that you don't want to get into a situation where you're quote unquote match with the family, and then you're raising these questions because I think oftentimes Adoptive parents can um, agree to things that maybe they're not prepared to simply because they find out later that this is what the expectant mom wants and is hoping for. And they want the adoption to go forward and they want to say yes. It ends up being a very dangerous situation to be in. You want adoptive parents to embrace the idea of open adoption if that's what you want for their own reasons, not just because that's what she wants, but because they value it independently of you. think that requires some education on their part and some research on their part. So I always encourage my clients that when you're talking about this issue, ask them why. When it don't, it's not just a, a, a box to check um, or to see if to see what boxes others have checked, but really to understand the why behind it. So ask adoptive parents if they say, "Oh yes, we want to have an open adoption." Why? Why is that important to you? Most importantly. Why do you think that's important to the child? And for expectant moms, asking themselves the same questions as well. Why do you think that's important for yourself and for the child? So first, let's define what that means. Open, you're open, semi-open, closed. Traditionally, closed means that there's no exchange of information between, between the adoptive parents and birth parents, really no communication at all. Once the legal paperwork has been signed, there's no further communication. And that's becoming less and less, it's becoming more and more rare, I'll say. And But there are situations that, that compel people to feel like that's the best for the child. If there's, you know, if there are extreme circumstances, if there's, if there's some sort of domestic violence, or if a mom feels like she needs to protect the child from an ongoing relationship, then she may opt for a closed adoption. Yeah, and then semi-open is basically pictures and letters sent to you through the agency. Updates, you get them periodically. This is probably 
the most common type of adoption until probably about five years ago, wouldn't you say? I would. And it, people are more and more communicating directly or mm-hmm. through through websites like Adopt Connect or even like Shutterfly or sometimes through social media. Some agencies still want the communication to go directly through them. But yes, I, I think that's true. I think generally speaking, this idea of semi-open was the norm and what people feel com- felt comfortable with. As Kelsey says, that's changing. Yeah. And then we've got open adoption where you're doing visits and open communication throughout the year. You, most likely you have each other's cell phone numbers, you're texting, you could FaceTime, call, and then you're also planning a visit or many visits throughout the year. And you always want to know how many. I think I'll say just in, in our practice that it's usually um, one to two visits throughout the year and depending on where people live and depending on just depending on the things like the busyness of life but typically it would be again depending on geography one to two visits throughout the year yeah to give you an idea for me personally my open adoption started with around five to six visits in person per year and I also lived in the same city as them and as life went on I moved across the country I am now visiting about once, sometimes twice a year, but that's about right. Hey, Kels, just to get to the brass tacks, because people want to know, like, how long are these visits? And these are things that you want to think about when you're talking about, okay, we're going to have a visit. If you live in California and the family lives in in New York, what is that going to require? Are you going to meet somewhere? Are you going to go Are you alternate? The visits, thinking about the fine through the finances of that and the practicalities of that. So, for you, how long do those visits last? Typically, so for me, I, when I go back to visit, my family lives a couple hours away, so I go to stay with my family, and then I will drive down and spend, I would say, anywhere from three to six hours with them, which is a pretty good chunk of the day. Sometimes we go out to eat, sometimes we go play in the backyard or in the basement or whatever really weather allows for usually. And does that change, imagine that changes from the time the child's a baby Mm -hmm. until they get, your son is five now and obviously you're having meaningful conversations and you can hang out and, and actually do things or go places where everyone's engaged. And that's not the case when, you know, Childs and newborns, I think people have to realize that and understand from the beginning that as a child grows and their developmental needs and abilities change, those visits yeah, can yeah. change along with so them. So when he was really little, I wouldn't be at their house for six hours because what do you do with a baby <laughs> for six hours? But I would, We those more frequent visits, like the five, six times a year, a lot of those visits were like, hey, let's go get brunch or let's go, why don't you stop by tonight and we'll have dinner and you can hang out. And then that was it, really. It wasn't really full day things. It's more, our visits are longer now because this is my one time a year. And we usually do something fun together, or go get dinner, and then come back to the house and hang out. Okay, and other questions that I know people want to know. Things like, what does he call you? Mm. And that's a big deal for people, and I understand why. So what does he call you? He just calls me Kelsey. That's something I'm super comfortable with. And when they're little, it's hard to figure that out. They don't actually know what they want to call you. I've heard 
a number of different options. I've heard they call me like Mama K or Mama Kelsey or um, there's just a number of things. What I don't recommend is settling for being called things like auntie or things that just aren't true. Something You're that's based a, on a lie. <laughs> yeah, just things that are just are, are not true. And I think that a lot of people, when they approach open adoption, they're like, he or she be confused by different sets of parents. And I think that confusion is natural and normal in any child. And all you have to do is talk through these things with your child, but also make an effort to not place more points of confusion in that child's life. I think oftentimes that confusion actually stems from exactly what you said, the way it's presented. Kids take our lead. One thing Mm -hmm. I've learned from being a parent myself is that children really will take our lead on things. And if from the beginning we're open and honest and presenting things in a light that makes it clear that you feel comfortable with something and this is these are the these are the facts and these are the people and this is our relationship kids adopt that and they're good with it but if you tense up and are hesitant and awkward and don't really like don't clearly don't feel comfortable talking about something they're going to take that on as well and they're going to take their your lead on that which is why it harkens back to really understanding the adoptive parents' thoughts and feelings about open adoption and the why behind their willingness willingness to establish that kind of a relationship. So again, asking them why they value it and why they want that. There are a lot of adoptive parents who are really disappointed if the birth mother falls out of contact with them because they they want that, they see the value in that for their child and and want that relationship to continue. Open adoption is all about growing and maintaining a relationship. So just like any other relationship, uh, honest communication, boundaries, empathy, grace, they're all very important ingredients in a healthy open adoption. And it's ongoing work. It is not an easy relationship by any means. I sometimes feel like I'm in an extra marriage, but it's worth it to keep that open adoption child centered, which is something that we'll hit on as well today. But Um, To keep that adoption child-centered, the adults have to all work together and and make that happen. Yeah, you got to communicate, again, just like any other relationship. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to talk about difficult things, and you have to trust each other, which which goes back to the beginning of establishing, of choosing that family in the first place. There has to be trust, and that trust only can happen through communicating and and building that trust by doing what you say you're going to do, it starts from the very beginning. And I think it's important to realize too that, or to know, it's important to know that most, say probably between 85 and 90% of adoptions today are considered open adoptions, meaning that there's ongoing communication between the parties, whether that is, uh, whether that's through receiving updates, phone photos, and then visits. Right. So you may be wondering, why should I choose open adoption? What are the benefits? What does that look like? So for a little bit of history lesson, adoptions were not always open. They were closed, and they were based around shame and secrecy, and women were sent away to homes for unwed mothers, and after giving birth, it was customary for them to never even see the baby at all. Um And social workers basically told them, you just forget that this ever happened. 
But really, how could you forget about such a huge event in your life? And how could you forget about your own child? And long story short, they did not forget. So adoption has been modernized since the days of shame and secrecy, thank God. But one of the major ways it has been changed is through open adoption. If you want to take a look at the benefits of open adoption. What are the benefits um, for you and for your child? Reason number one is, I think, reassurance that your child is alive, child's doing well, and just the privilege and the affection, or the privilege and the, the joy that comes from seeing seeing your child grow up and develop interests and integrate into his or her family. And just knowing that the idea that a mom could go through this process and not know, not have any information, has always been mind-boggling to me. And I don't think that should be asked of anyone. If a mom chooses that and always, you know, and has the option to change her mind along the way, that's understandable. A lot of times there are difficult circumstances that may not allow that, but it's just a basic right of a birth mother that it has made an adoption plan for their child. Reason number two, um, it allows allows the birth mother and the adoptive parents to answer the child's questions. So there, where there once was kind of a secrecy, um, and secrecy, as we know, breeds shame. There, that's removed, and it normalizes as it should for the child their experience and their adoption story. And there's no there's no wondering. Kids make up answers to questions when they don't have when they don't have the information in front of them. So instead of wondering what their parent is about, what they like, what they look like, whether they resemble them in an appearance or in temperament or in basic personality, they have those answers. Most importantly, they have answers to the questions about why did the adoption take place? Why did my mom make this? decision to make an adoption plan for me rather than parenting what were her motivations is it instead of the child concluding that mom didn't want the child or mom didn't love the child and mom and there's there's a, a real sense of obviously of abandonment that can come from that there are answers and those answers can come directly from the child's birth mother herself when the time is right and this is here are the reasons why and I think that creates a foundation and an invitation for, for ongoing communication for the child. Reason number three, your child has access to you in case genetic questions, you know, genetic and medical questions arise. That's, that's very important. Next reason is your child won't need to search for you someday and have this moment in pre-adolescence or in adolescence or as a young adult that this big, explosive, dramatic moment. But it's always you're a known factor throughout the child's life. And there's a lot of security knowing that the birth parents have been a part of this child's life from day one. And then your child will be able to gain insight and ask questions about their identity and roots. This is such a big one and those questions may not come for years and years but they they definitely will and and you'll be available to be there and answer those people have an innate desire to know their origin mm-hmm. and their roots and that doesn't mean that they don't love their adoptive family one thing that i just that kills me is when you hear adult adoptees say that they never wanted to search for their birth parents birth family because they didn't want to hurt their adoptive parents feelings. And I hate to hear that. What I want to hear is that the adoptive family has encouraged them and even helped them. And from the very beginning, communicated to them, here's here's information. We're celebrating this information. We're celebrate your identity and your heritage. And we recognize 
what a fundamental, valuable part of you that those things bring and those things offer. Yes, for sure. I can tell you as I am a daughter of an adoptee and the granddaughter of an adoptee, and I'm the fourth generation in my family to relinquish. And our family tree is very severed, but we all have this desire and this need to find out things about our background and our roots. And I know adoptees feel the same way and your child is going to feel the same way. When you are in an open adoption, the dynamic is, it can be a little bit confusing for you, but I think to keep it child-centered, you have to strive to have an equitable relationship. And what that means is not to be co-parenting. That's not what you're doing. But just to know that your role doesn't end at the hospital. For all the reasons that we just named, you are there for your child, answer his or her questions, and to be there in whatever kind of role that they ask of you. And by they, I mean your child. Yeah. Under the, you know, adoptive parents sometimes say, well, isn't, uh, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear about this issue of open adoption on, for adoptive, for everyone, for adoptive parents. I think one of the biggest fears is, well, that sounds like co-parenting. It's not mm-hmm. co-parenting. It doesn't look like co-parenting. And it certainly, it, I've never had an adoptive parent tell me when they're actually in the relationship that it feels like co-parenting. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly not. And so I would encourage adoptive parents to just get some education and talk to people who have, who are in these relationships and to help allay their fears. Next thing we want to talk about dun, dun, is the importance of written contact agreements. And here's the question, and this is something that the listener touched on. She asked, do I need a written contact agreement? What happens if the adoptive parents stop communicating with me? Huge question, and it should be. There's nothing, keep saying that there's nothing worse to me, but this goes in that category. It's really frustrating, I'll say, to hear from a birth mother that the adoptive parents are not following through with what they said they were going to do as far as staying in contact, whether that means sending photos or updates or honoring her requests for visit. It's not okay. It's absolutely, with the exception of very unusual, very extreme circumstances that would require them to not follow through. Maybe there's just, there's physical or, or you know, emotional danger for the child, which is very rare, very rare. There's no, there's absolutely no excuse for not following through. Being afraid, being uncomfortable, worrying about confusion. No, you follow through. And not just because you said you would, but because it's, it is been proven to be the best thing for the child and to be what's required and and what's required in a child-centered adoption but so when it comes to when it comes to contact agreements we strongly recommend that there's a written agreement that it's written down that it's reviewed and signed by you after you review it with your attorney and after the adoptive parents have a chance to review it with their attorney as well and to make sure that in any state that that allows it that it's that it's filed with the court. Currently in the U.S., there are all different sorts of laws about open adoption agreements and whether they're enforceable or not. So that means whether a court of law will require the adoptive parents to follow through with what they've agreed. In 25 states, these agreements are enforceable. 
in seven states, they're enforceable, but only under certain conditions. So for example, if the child was a certain age when the adoption happened in six states, the law says very clearly that the agreements are not enforceable. And in 20 states, there's no law at all. When a state doesn't have a law about contact agreements, by default, they're unenforceable. And to find out which states and to get the summary of the state's law, you can visit adoptmatch.com. So when you're giving up your legal rights to your child, it's a good idea to at least have some reassurance that you are going to be able to stay connected, even in a small way, so that your child knows you're involved, you care, and so that you have the peace and comfort from knowing your child is doing well as he or she grows up. Some adoption professionals and some adoptive parents may say, we we trust each other, and why do we need to write that down? It seems very formal. We write things down that are important to us. We write things down to make sure there's no misunderstanding. And there can, this is a real, this is an area where there's a real possibility for misunderstanding. And misunderstanding often leads to broken relationships. And this is something you can do to prevent that. You write it down, you sign it, you file it with the court, file it with the court where possible. If you want to do more than the agreement says, you can do more. You can always expand. But when that mom sits down to sign those that legal paperwork, that consent, that relinquishment, she knows and she has the reassurance, like Kelsey said, that this is going to happen in the future and that I'm going to receive updates and photos and I'm going to have the right to visit for years and years to come. And that's what and she can take that with her rather than the this lingering fear of what if they what if they stop communicating with me and it's a valid fear and we've seen it happen to so many birth moms and we don't want it to happen to you or anyone else for that matter Kels, why do you think that happens why do you think adoptive parents because it seems on its face like oh that would be a terrible thing for adoptive parents to do and i always think what are they going to tell the child later um, about why mm-hmm. they failed to honor this agreement, this promise that they had made. What are some of the reasons that you hear? I think nine, nine times out of 10, it's fear, insecurity. I hear reasons like, gosh, oh, she just got, it got to be too much. She just, she didn't have boundaries. She didn't, it was all about her, like what she did or did not do. But I, I think one of the biggest reasons for not knowing what to do is because no one has told us. No one has told us how to set healthy boundaries. No one has educated us on what happens after the hospital. And so we are throwing shots in the dark. We don't really know what we're supposed to do. And we don't know where a boundary is until we've crossed it. And so the whole purpose that we started thinking about adoption is to inform expectant mothers and birth mothers alike that this is typical this is what someone should have told you but probably didn't and we want to help you be successful in your open adoption we want you to get the help that you need get the information you need the resources you need and you are dealing with something like that that you can overcome it yeah, and to know that it's reasonable to ask for these things. Yeah. And you know, I always think about the there are so many so many books about for example, different kinds of relationships. So mm-hmm. everything from your marriage, obviously, your relationship with your in-laws, mm-hmm. your your relationship with coworkers, think about your relationship with your dog. I think I saw a book recently about that. But there there are not any 
manuals or Mm -hmm. specific support resources for how to navigate this relationship. And it's a really unique one. I'll tell you that there are people out there, though, and can find those resources on Adopt Match that can help people through these relationships because people are successfully navigating open adoptions beautifully in a mm-hmm. way that's child-centered. And we want to bring those stories to the forefront so people can be inspired by and take guidance from those relationships. Yeah, you can have an open adoption that's healthy. You can have good boundaries and healthy relationship that grows over time. And it, it can be a successful arrangement, so to speak. I think when you think about it from the child's perspective, that for the child to know that this relationship is important to everyone involved Mm -hmm. and that these birth parents are engaged with the child, they're interested, they're excited to receive updates, and that their adoptive parents are honoring and respecting their birth family can make an incredible impact on the way they feel about themselves. And think if adoptive parents understand these things and are educated about these things, it will significantly help. And I think that's starting to happen. Yeah. And I hope that it just continues to get more positive over time. Here are the takeaways. Make sure you talk about open adoption from the very beginning, from before you ever make a choice of adoptive family, for adoptive of an adoptive family. Ask if what they're open to And don't forget to ask why and ask yourself why as well. Find out, do get educated on this topic, have a written post-adoption agreement written down, reviewed between with you and your attorney, make sure you understand the provisions, make sure everything in make sure there's everything in it you want and make sure that the adoptive parents are agreeing to it for the right reasons. This has been thinking about adoptions podcast. Thank you for joining us.